Welcome back to another edition of the 10 Blocks podcast. This is Vanessa Mendoza. I am the Executive Vice President at the Manhattan Institute and a proud City Journal Publications Committee member. Today, we are turning the tables on your regular host, Brian Anderson, for what is now officially an annual podcast tradition, Brian's Summer Reading List. If you missed last year's episode, here's the background. I've worked with Brian for many years now, and he has been, since the very beginning, my first stop for book recommendations, and not just for the summer, but all year long. But every summer, Brian curates a particularly good list for his August vacation, and since I am not the only one in the office who waits for this list, we thought we'd share it with you, our audience. So summer's here, and Brian's getting ready to leave us in a couple of weeks, and that means I get to bother him about what books he'll be reading on the beach. One announcement before we get started. City Journal readers will be delighted to know that the summer 2019 issue of the magazine is hot off the press, and in fact, it is in my hands in our studio right now. They should start arriving in mailboxes later this week week. If you are not a subscriber, you should be. Of course, you can read the pieces online, but there is nothing like holding the magazine in your hands. It is absolutely beautiful. So please look for it either in your neighborhood bookstore or make sure to subscribe online. Okay, that's it for the introduction. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back with Brian Anderson after the music. Okay, we are back. I am Vanessa Mendoza, the Executive Vice President at the Manhattan Institute and CJ Publications Committee member. And joining me in the studio is the editor of City Journal and the regular host of 10 Blocks, your friend and mine, Brian Anderson. Brian, welcome to your own podcast. Thank you, Vanessa. Very glad to be here, as I am on the other side of the uh, microphone. (laughs) I'm sure. Well, at the Manhattan Institute and, of course, in the City Journal office, we are all big readers. But you may be the most eclectic or or maybe even idiosyncratic in your curation of the books that you read. So why don't we just start with the general question, which is, you know, how do you go about devising this summer list of yours? Are you deliberately hitting all different areas and genres, or does it come together organically? Yeah, I think it's it's probably a little more organic than uh, uh, planned out. Uh, I try to get a range of books. I don't want too many very long ones because I like being able to read, you know, at least uh, six or seven books while on vacation. Uh, So maybe I'll do one or two bigger ones and then a series of smaller ones. I try to get some fiction in there, um, but also books that I've noticed over the past uh, months that either for historical reasons I've wanted to read or things that have been in the news more recently that I haven't had the opportunity to get to. You know, it's it's always uh, a real opportunity for me to catch up on uh, intellectual currents and uh, and you know it's it's really the the one period of the year where I get to read things other than manuscripts for most of the time. Um, so much of your time running a magazine is just involved with reading things that are coming across your desk, submissions, uh, things in the news. So so you know this is just a super opportunity. Well, for me, I love your list not just because they suggest many things for me to take on my vacation, but it's sort of like peering into the mind of Brian Anderson, all the things that you like, all the things that you're looking to learn about. So it's a lot of fun getting your list every summer. So with that, let's jump right in. You have seven books on your list this year, 
And the first up is George Will's new book, The Conservative Sensibility. So tell us a little bit why you, you put it on your list. Well, I've been reading George Will as a columnist for years. Uh, he's a Pulitzer Prize winner, of course. Uh, he's been one of the more astute commentators on um, every aspect of our political life, both domestic and foreign, uh, for decades now. Um, but this this book is is uh, George Will wearing his scholar's hat, uh, his political philosopher hat. Um, it's it's kind of his magnum opus, describing his vision of America, um, of the founding, and uh, providing a critique of where he sees the country heading, uh, with regard to things like uh, uh, you know natural rights and. Uh, the the rise of uh, the administrative state. So, um, you know, I'm really looking forward to it. It's a big book. This is one of my, is my biggest book this summer. Um, but I, I think Will um, and his reputation deserve the attention. Well, you know, I love this book. We were very lucky. For those of you that don't know, we have a Young Leaders Program at the Manhattan Institute. And right now, that Young Leaders Program takes place in New York City. And it's an event that we host every month for our under 45 membership group. And we had George Will last month as our guest, and I had the opportunity to interview him. And it was fascinating, not only because, as you say, this is a real culmination of his work, but this is a man who's originally from Illinois, but who has spent the last 50 years in Washington. And so right. his observations over time are you know, fascinating, not just fascinating, but I think really important. Um, he, he describes a lot of things that I think you know those of us at the magazine and at the Institute know, but that are really important for a greater audience, including how far away the general public has gotten from understanding the founders' original vision, right? you know, how absolutely progressives have rejected it. And so he makes a really big plea. It's, it's a very libertarian vision for Will, more so than I would have been expecting, but I think he's moved in that direction uh, in his thinking over time. Yeah. So it's a strong defense of natural rights, of limited government, um, you, you know, of the role of religion in public life, um, the importance of property, all of these things that he he articulates as as being part of this incredible new vision of the founding fathers, and then you know as I mentioned earlier, the book is also a description of how we're, as you've just said, drifting away from these things over time. Yeah, the big the big I mean, there's a lot to take away from the book, but the big news in the book is are his views on judicial supervision, because this is a big move for him from what he formerly right. believed. Right, and here I would yeah. disagree with him. Uh, he he. Uh, you know, he is very anti-majoritarian, I guess you would say, in his conservatism. So he believes that the originalist constitutional thinkers like Robert Bork or, or on the court uh, Scalia um, have uh, ceded too much ground to the popular will in the way they think about the Constitution. And uh, a will is in favor of a more activist judiciary. Uh, but one that would be defending the founders' vision of natural rights. Yeah, he says that judicial deference to Congress and the executive, in his words, is an abdication of duty. It's it's fascinating. He has a long chapter on this. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really important read, whether or not you agree with that particular portion or not. But the book, it's 
of course, it's absolutely beautifully written, very important. And so I will look forward to talking to you about it once you've had a chance to get through it. Yep, looking forward to it. This August. So, you know, one thing that he does talk about the role of religion, but he himself is what he calls a low-voltage atheist. So God did not play too central a role in his book. But that is not the case for your next book on your list, which is Curing Mad Truths, Medieval Wisdom for the Modern Age by Remy Bragg. Remy Bragg, yep. Bragg, Bragg. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about uh, the book and why you picked it. Well, Bragg is a very, he's a preeminent uh, French theologian and philosopher. He's taught in the U.S. as well. This is his uh, first book that uh, was composed in English. Several of his other books have been translated, uh, including The Law of God, a book called The Kingdom of Man that recently came out in English, um, Eccentric Culture is another book he wrote, uh, which which was a kind of theory of the foundations of Western civilization. This book, um, it's based on a series of lectures he's given over the years in, in America. And it's really a kind of critique of the modern world, arguing that we've lost a, a kind of transcendent ground for recognizing um, the fundamental importance of human beings or even of the natural order. Um, you know, that we, we recognize these things as important, but we no longer have a way of, uh, of saying why in a kind of deep philosophical sense. So that his argument is in this book, as I gather it to be, is that we should look to, or we can look to the Middle Ages, not in the sense of trying to return us to uh, a more primitive era, but in, in the sense of trying to grasp its understanding of creation as uh, divinely uh, established and good, intrinsically good. Um, you know, in, in his view, the risk of losing sight of that kind of transcendence is that we're going to uh, wind up in a kind of nihilism um, and begin treating people as uh, mere matter or cogs in a machine. Um, so I'm looking forward to it. This is a, it's a deep book, uh, I imagine, having read several things of his before, um, but it's, it's also nice and short. Well, he was, I don't know if, he, not a student, but I think he was heavily influenced by Strauss, which... Uh, you know, he's conversant with that language. Um, you know, he was a teacher. He's retired now. He's an emeritus professor at the University of Paris. Uh, but he was a medievalist, and uh, he's an ex- expert in Arabic philosophy mm-hmm. and Islamic thought. Um, you know, he's won what, a major religious prize called the Joseph... Ratzinger Prize after um, the the later Pope, uh, which many people consider a kind of Nobel Prize of theology. So he's he's a heavy hitter. I think the connection with uh, Strauss probably comes uh, through uh, the University of Chicago, where I believe he has taught. Yeah, that's and, right. And the University of Chicago has published several of his books. That's right. That's right. Um, he he gives Strauss a lot of credit. Y- yeah, he's he's very conversant again with. Um, all of these European currents of, of intellectual life and, uh, and writes uh, very beautifully, too. Well, sort of taking a right turn from there, the third book on your list is Infinite Baseball by right. Alva No. So, you know, I know you're a basketball fan. Yep. I think I sort of knew you were a baseball fan. I mean, is that I, you know, large it's, for you? That's, that's actually, uh, you know, when I was growing up, I was obsessed with baseball. I, you know, I would play it with my friends every day after school or during the summer. You know, I obsessively followed all of the statistical information. I used to buy sporting news or have my parents buy it for me and pour over all of the uh, 
you know, the hitting charts. I'd listen to the Red Sox. I grew up in the Boston area on the radio or would go to Fenway Park and see games a lot. Um, played this uh, game called Stratomatic where the it was a board game and you manage teams and the players, you know, were represented by cards and the cards translated all of their statistical abilities into the game. But, you know, I, I got away from baseball over the years, and as you mentioned, I'm much more of a basketball fan now uh, and have uh, followed soccer the last uh, five or six years, I guess. But, you know, I want to read this book, uh, Infinite Baseball, by Alva No, uh, is the author, he's a philosopher, to see if I can reconnect with uh, my, my youthful interests in this area. Uh, you know, ma Major League Baseball's just incredibly profitable these days. But it's, um, you know, it's profitable because of the number of games and the TV contracts. But I, I don't know, attendance is dropping and younger people aren't as enthusiastic about baseball. They find it too slowly paced, as, as I kind of do now. But this book, uh, from, from what I understand about it, uh, makes a kind of intellectual case for baseball and tries to take you inside games, what, what is actually going on in a game and explaining what, what that says about life so that when you watch a baseball game, you're not going to be bored. You're going to understand that there's a, a kind of an entire array of things going on that, that are very, very important. Well, I'll note that our first author, George Will, on our list today has also blurbed this book, which makes sense since he's such a big baseball right. fan. Right. Will, Will uh, is a huge baseball fan, and um, I had read uh, never read his uh, – Men at Work, I think, is the name of his famous book on baseball. But he also did a little one, which I did read a couple of years ago, on the history of the Chicago Cubs. Uh, Will is a huge Chicago Cubs fan. And I found that uh, charming. <laughs> well, so we've gone back to your childhood for baseball. Right. I think in some part maybe we've gone back to your teenage years for your next book, which is called The Awfully Big Adventure of Michael Jackson in the Afterlife by Paul Morley. Now, Paul is an English music journalist. Right. And why I'm sure that connects to you is something our listeners probably don't know is that you started your work life in a music store. Yes, that's right. Um, you know, and uh, I can remember, in fact, when Michael Jackson's thriller – uh, was the big hit record when I was working in the record store at that time. And it was just, you know, flying. That, that was his famous album that was produced by Quincy Jones. That record was just flying out of the store day after day after day for, you know, years. It was really a, a kind of extraordinary music success. You know, it's been 10 years now since uh, Jackson died in Los Angeles. He was an early victim of the opioid, um, you know, crisis in a way or opioid abuse. Uh, but people, I think, have started to forget about his extraordinary cultural influence, which was very pronounced when I was working at the record store. Um, you know, as a singer, a dancer, as a pioneer in the MTV era of, uh, of videos, you know, short, short films accompanying music. Um, these days, though, when we think of Michael Jackson, you know, if, if you think about him at all, it's, it's as a kind of monster, uh, mutilating his face through plastic surgery, whitening his skin, and, of course, for all of his uh, creepy interest in children and the rumors that he was a pedophile. Uh, so this book is trying to come to terms with Michael Jackson to look at this kind of tragic arc of his life. The author, um, Paul Morley, was a writer I first began to read when I was in my early 20s. He was a 
great music critic and writer for New Musical Express, which was a, a British weekly um, music newspaper that I would go into Boston and hit the newsstand whenever the new edition would come out every week. Um, it, it was something I just, you know, poured over page after page. Uh, he authored a book la two years ago on David Bowie called The Age of Bowie, which I also read. Um, he's, as you mentioned, a kind of regular presence in British uh, media. Um, you know, I've loved his musical sensibility, and he's brought a lot of pleasure into my life over the years just through his music recommendations and criticism. But there's another interesting detail. The other great critic for New Musical Express at that time, uh, he was Morley's sort of youthful partner in crime, was a writer called Ian Penman, uh, who now writes regularly for City Journal. Um, you know, he's published wonderful essays for us on Walter Benjamin, Steely Dan, James Brown, John Fahey. Uh, he's just a, a great, great writer himself. So. Um, it's it's kind of been exciting to connect up with this aspect of my youth through the magazine. Well, and this is a short book as well. It, and you're right, though. I mean, it's no matter what happens, Michael Jackson definitely still lives on. I mean, my seven-year-old is dancing to Thriller. Well, that's uh, I, I see. Mean, all right, there you go. So it, it is still uh, still present. Yeah. Um, yeah. Know. Well, that looks good. And so does your next book, which is called Orange World by Karen oh, yeah. Russell. And Karen is an American novelist. I mean, she's essentially a short story writer. I think that's the majority of what she does. Um, she's best known for a book called Swamplandia, which was a finalist for the 2012 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. Right. And uh, I, as I think I told you before, I've never read Karen Russell before, but I'm really interested in her book, Vampires in the Lemon Grove. But tell us why you picked Orange World. Well, I had read her uh, novel, uh, Swamplandia, uh, which is about a uh, it, it's sort of a surrealist tale um, set in Florida about a group of uh, a family of alligator wrestlers, and they they have a rundown amusement park in the Everglades, and supernatural things creep in. And uh, I just found it a kind of riveting book that came out, oh maybe six or seven years ago. Uh, so I love love that book. I have not read though her short stories, and she is uh, best known for her short stories. A previous collection, Vampires in the Lemon Grove, which you just mentioned, came out in 2013. And this new collection, Orange World and Other Stories, uh, has just appeared, and it looks terrific. It's, you know, she writes these these uh, kind of fantastic Gothic stories. Uh, they're about human nature, about family, about complex relationships. And she can be, at least on the basis of Swamp Swamplandia and what I've read about some of these short stories, um, you know, funny and terrifying and tender at the same time, all within, you know, 20 pages. So this, this collection reportedly uh, features stories about uh, a ghost ship, uh, a town succubus, uh, tourism in a post-apocalyptic drowned city, and the devil, among other things. So it, it sounds like it'll be very entertaining um, uh, beach read the uh, the story I think which is I think the primary story about the devil is about a new mother desperate to ensure her baby's safety she strikes a deal with the devil in exchange for the child's protection something tells me that story will will float yes for a long time in the sort of public ether I think yeah um, so yes that's that's probably my uh, main fiction component this summer so then your next book on your list is Anti-Fragile, which is Nassim Nicholas Taleb's uh, book. It's one of 
a, it's a book in his series that is an investigation of luck and uncertainty, probability, right. um, and it's, of course, a really big book. Um, he's also the author of the best-selling book, The Black Swan, which sold over three million copies. I think The Black Swan is generally about how uncertain the world is, and I think Antifragile is supposed to be his response to that. Right, how do you right. live in that world? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, fragile things break uh, when they're under stress. Um, you know, according to Leb, though, there there are other things that, instead of breaking when they're stressed, actually get stronger. Uh, in the way that when you lift weights, and in in exercising, um, you damage your body, but it comes back in a in a stronger form. So he shows how this anti-fragile um, aspect of life shows up in you know, economic life, in, in biological systems, urban planning with cities, um, all these different areas. And for him, it's, it's what we should be modeling our public policy on and try to move society towards. So we should have a financial system that is anti-fragile. We should have, um, y- y- you know, uh, uh, city, city streets organized in an anti-fragile way. Um, it, it's it's one of these ideas I think that's very uh, very sharp and captures something about life that nobody else had quite written about in this way before because it's different than resilience. We often talk about the resilience of systems that they survive stress, but what he's he's talking about is something that gets stronger with stress. Jonathan Haidt, in his most recent book, or this is Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukanoff, they wrote The Coddling of the American Mind. They talk about this a lot in reference to kids and teenagers and how you raise your children so that they can be uh, both strong but be able to participate in, in public life as they get to college and otherwise. And Haidt makes, uh, he cites uh, Talib, but he, he makes a very persuasive argument in that book around how kids should be thought of in that way, too. They're a muscle that needs to be built. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an idea, uh, you know, that, that can have applications in, in almost every area of life. Now, you know, Taleb has a very, he's a very pugnacious uh, person. His style uh, puts some people off. It makes a kind of energetic reading, but, uh, but you know, he goes after the people he disagrees with uh, sometimes in intemperate ways. That's very evident on his Twitter feed, which can be, uh, you know, off-putting to some people. But he's he's clearly one of the more original and uh, insightful thinkers of our time. And I've read several of his other books, um, including his most recent one, um, Skin in the Game. But I have not read this, which many people consider his best. Well, and I think he's made a lot of money for his investors, right? I mean, he's safeguarded them from a lot of the R- right. Uh, you know, his dips. his idea of black swans was that you you have are not calculating risk properly in most financial models and that you hedge massively against that risk. That's how he, he got rich and he, you know, when he was uh, an investor um, he, and, and as an advisor, he has recommended a similar kind of approach. Yeah, I think you're right. I think maybe, you know, his, his way of communicating is not for everybody, but I do think he's on everybody's must-read list. Yep. That's um, for sure. So, so that, uh, that's probably my most uh, challenging book this summer. Well, that brings us to number seven, which is Henry Luce and His American Century by the historian Alan Brinkley. So tell us how and why you put this on your list. Well, you know, anybody who works in 
the magazine world in the area of politics and public policy um, would be interested, I think, in Luce's life. He was, you know, he died 50 years ago, but he was the the founder of, of three iconic American uh, magazines, Time, Fortune, and Life, two of those still with us, Time and Fortune. Um, you know, these are three of the great magazines in American history. If you go back, as I do, you know, I, I look for these kind of old issues in flea markets, uh, and when you pick up the old issues, you know, from 30 or 40 years ago, you'd be astonished at the kind of literacy, their range of intelligent articles, the design, which was was just magnificent. You know, I found a life, an issue, old issue of Life magazine last summer at a Cape Cod flea market, and it had a brilliant, beautifully illustrated essay by the great social thinker Daniel Bell, um, you know, who was also a longtime editor, uh, labor editor at Fortune magazine. Uh, Fortune published Jane Jacobs' first major foray into journalism, uh, a piece on trying to understand what was going wrong with Pittsburgh's urban, urban redevelopment plans. Uh, Whitaker Chambers was Time Magazine's literary editor for, for a period. So Brinkley's, you know, this uh, eminent historian, Columbia University, uh, the book looks at the 20th century through uh, Luce's lens and, the, you know, and his publishing empire. And I expect it'll have something to say about uh, where we're heading with media and journalism, you know, which is transforming in so many unpredictable ways. And there's also a, a kind of connection with City Journal in that my predecessor uh, as editor of City Journal, Myron Magnet, was previously an editor and writer at Fortune. And he brought, when he came to City Journal, some of the uh, loose empire editing lessons to the magazine's house style, which we retain, you know, strong topic sentences, uh, elimination of jargon, um, you know, minimal use of passive sentences, uh, one big picture is worth more than three small ones. Um, those, you know, those have kind of become part of our DNA at the magazine. And I guess it probably traces all the way back to loose. Well, and, you know, in addition to all that he created, I mean, what a massive effect he had on the country and all the different things that he created. He was also very involved in political life. Oh, yeah. I mean, he used those magazines with, you know, with a political agenda, no question. Yeah. And he had an you know, interesting upbringing. He was born in China, spent his first, I think, most of his early childhood there before coming back to the States. So it'd be interesting to think about what he would think about the world today. Um, but I'm sure you'll get a lot of that when you're reading the book. Yes, I'm looking forward very much. This came out a few years ago, but it's it's one I've been meaning to get to uh, and just haven't had the time. So this summer will will be that time. Well, so tell us, Brian. I mean, that brings us to the end of our list. But you know, just as sort of a, a an ending note here, anything that you uh, that you read this past year that you really loved that our readers should know about? Because these are all books that you are looking forward to read this August. But anything that you've read over the past year that you think must read? Well, you know, there's. Um, you, you ask me on one day, I'll give you a different answer uh, than I would on another. So, um, you know, I, I would say recently, maybe over the last two years, has been three books that have at least that have stood out. One is by uh, a friend of Remy Braggs, actually, a, a French political philosopher, Pierre Menant, uh, a collection of interviews with him called Seeing Things Politically uh, came out um, recently in English. 
and I, I wrote an essay on it for the new criterion. It covers Manat's uh, you know, readings of the tradition of Western political thought, his reflections on the importance of the nation, uh, his critique of liberalism, his indebtedness to his two great teachers, uh, Raymond Aron and Alan Bloom. Um, and it's, it's just this wonderful introduction to political philosophy, but also to Manat's own, uh, you know, own career. Uh, the second uh, I read not so long ago, it's the latest novel from one of my very favorite authors, uh, Haruki Murakami. It's called uh, Killing Commanditore. And, you know, like so much of Murakami's writing, uh, it's surreal, it's hypnotic. Um, it tells, you know, it's tough to even convey the plot. It tells the story of a, a Tokyo painter um, who, after his life, wife leaves him, moves into the home of this other famous artist who is, is uh, deceased, and he discovers uh, a previously unseen painting by this uh, famous artist, and that sets in motion this, this just mad um, journey that involves a strange ringing bell, uh, a two-foot-tall person that's, you know, a, a strange supernatural hole in the ground, a precocious teenage girl, uh, and this wealthy businessman who's very, very self-composed, but who may be haunted by uh, something very dark and terrifying, uh, despite his good intentions. So the book are, you know, these are all recurring themes in Murakami's novels, if, uh, if our listeners haven't read any of them. You know, war, it's got all of his themes, war, the role of art, loneliness, friendship, um, and it's the author's uh, homage to uh, The Great Gatsby. So uh, it's, it's, I just loved it. And then the third, this is a bit of a, a shift. Uh, it's Tony Robbins' uh, a book, Money, Master the Game, Seven Simple Steps to Financial Freedom. Now, this was one of the most useful books I've ever read. It's, you know, by this self-help guru. Everybody knows who Tony Robbins is. Um, but, you know, it clarified a lot of things for me, 401ks, index funds, hidden fees, you know, different ways of saving money, diversification, risk. It's very breezy. It's uh, excessive. I think it's 700 pages. Uh, but it draws on his conversations with a lot of leading investors, uh, including Ray Dalio. Um, and, you know, I wish I'd read it when I was uh, 25, uh, but better late than never. Yeah, I read that book, too. It was a... It was no, a big it's, book it's, to carry around, but it was. Yeah, I agree with you. It was really accessible for sure. Yeah, and it's uh, you know it's it's helped me uh, quite a bit. So I'll give you one one plug for a book that I read this year that I love just because I think it's really important. It's Land of Hope: An Invitation to the Great American Story by Bill McClay. And oh, yes. it's, yeah, it's, we re re reviewed that uh, recently in City Journal. Well, I loved it, not not only because I'm happy always to reread, especially beautifully written stories about American history, but I think it's really important because there are so few books that are this accessible, particularly to all different age groups. So I loved it. This, I think this it's is important. a history of America and, you know, designed to be a, a kind of um, counterpoint to all of these very critical histories of America. It's not that he's not critical, but... It's a balanced treatment, so. Um, oh, yeah, I think super important, but mostly because 
in, in addition to the fact that it is being responsive to some of those critiques, which I think is really important, it's beautifully written. I mean, it's just a gorgeous narrative. And I think it's very accessible to lots of different kinds of people, including, for example, you know, my kids as they get older, which is going to be really important. So I love the book. I hope a lot of people go out there to read it, not just for themselves, but to buy it and to give it to a young person growing up who's probably not getting this education in their school, at least not right now. Well, yes, I'm a big fan of Bill McClay, and I hope it sells many, many copies. <laughs> well, with that, thank you, Brian, for sharing your list. Thank you, Vanessa. I'm looking forward to my vacation. <laughs> well, you have a great time. And to our audience, thanks so much for being with us. Until next time. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.